iGen Politics, formerly known as Intergenerational Politics, a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi, a freshman at UCLA and the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. I'm an MSNBC legal analyst and the author of The Watergate Girl. I'm also the wearer of Jill's pins, and today's pin is in honor of our chess champion. It is a queen. It's not exactly a chess piece queen. It's from... Um, Alice in Wonderland, but it was the closest I could come to honor Gary Kasparov. So here we go. Uh, Take it away, Victor. Today's episode will cover a question neither Jill nor I ever thought we'd have to discuss in America, and that is to what extent our democracy is at risk and what we can do to protect it. This topic is one brought on by what has been happening in America since the election of 2016. Unfortunately, since then and throughout the Trump administration and into today, America has strayed from the fundamental principles of our Constitution, threatening not only our civil rights and liberties and our most basic institutions, but also even the notion of free and fair elections and facts. So much so that we witness a full-blown but thankfully unsuccessful insurrection on January 6th because the President of the United States cannot admit the truth that he lost the election, a lie he continues to repeat to this day. That means that the threat to our democracy is real and the specter of creeping authoritarianism isn't limited just to the United States either. It's something that is occurring throughout the world, from Russia to Hungary to the Philippines. And today we have two guests whose work on protecting democracy will help us break down the global trends and authoritarianism that we are now facing. What causes democracies to decline and authoritarianism's to flourish, and we will explore the state of democracies in the U.S. and elsewhere and look to what we can do to promote democracies and democratic values throughout the world. So first up, we have with us Gary Kasparov, who you may know is one of the greatest chess players to ever exist, but is now the chairman of an organization Renew Democracy Initiative, or RDI, as we'll probably refer to today, whose goal is to create the intellectual foundation to make significant political reform possible and foster a national movement that prioritizes American leadership, free discourse, and democratic principles. Um, Born in the Soviet Union, Gary Kasparov became the under-18 chess champion of the USSR, age of 12, and the world under 20 champion at age 17. He came to international fame at the age of 22 as the youngest world chess champion in history in 1985 and played against the IBM supercomputer Deep Blue in 1996 to 1997, which was key to bring artificial intelligence and chess into the mainstream. Uh, Thank you so much for Gary for being here with us today. Thanks for inviting me. And one last thing that I want to mention about Gary before we talk about Uriel is that he... um, was had the role in producing Queen's Gambit. And if you love the movie as much as I did, <laughs> I bet that our listeners uh, and viewers will know all about that and will want to talk about that after we're talking about democracy first. Our second guest is Uriel Efstein, the executive director of Renew Democracy Initiative. Prior to joining RDI, Uriel worked in the private sector, first as a consultant at Boston Consulting Group, and then in strategy at startups in the mobility space, including DoorDash and Uber, something that during COVID we've all become all too familiar with. Um, As a student at Yale University, he founded, um, and to this day continues to chair, the Peace and Dialogue Leadership Initiative, called PDLI, 
an organization dedicated to bridging the civil-military divide and creating a space on campuses for a nuanced discussion of the U.S. role in the Middle East. Thank you, Uriel, for joining us today. Thank you. My bio is a little bit shorter than Gary's. <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're half of my age. You're... <laughs> <laughs> that is also true. So think what it will be at the same age. Um, <laughs> and we do have a packed episode, so I'm going to turn it over to Victor to ask the first questions. Yeah, sounds good. So I'd like to start today's conversation maybe by having Gary first tell us why focus on renewing democracy. And then maybe, Uriel, you can take it away by talking about how Renew Democracy Initiative came about. Look, I, I don't think you should have any doubts about my interest in democracy. I was born and raised in the Soviet Union uh, in a totalitarian state. And uh, I, um, sh I saw and I experienced the shortages of totalitarian state and inability to think freely, to speak, to um, promote your ideas. Though, as, as first as a chess prodigy and late as a chess champion, I had much more freedom than was available to uh, my compatriots. And uh, um, in the very beginning of, of Gorbachev's perestroika, I joined as a young world champion in a nascent pro-democracy movement in the Soviet Union. And I was always getting back and forth um, because I, I kept playing chess, of course, uh, but I thought that it was my role as, as a celebrity, as a very prominent man uh, in, in the Soviet Union, late in Russia, to add my voice to those who were fighting, A, to overthrow the communist regime, to promote democracy in Russia, and later to defend it. And uh, I watched with horror um, the Lieutenant, KGB Lieutenant Colonel Vladimir Putin gradually you know, dismantling uh, this very feeble democratic institutions that were built in Russia under Boris Yeltsin in the 90s. And in 2005, I stopped playing chess and I decided to, to devote my life, at least part of my life, fighting back against the return of, of KGB dictatorship to Russia. Many say I failed because I had to uh, leave Russia in 2013, and I, since then I live in exile here in New York City. Uh, but also I, I, I gained a lot of experience, and actually I could see, I witnessed Putin's interest in spreading this totalitarian trend beyond Russian borders, first to the neighboring countries, the former Soviet republics, then to Europe. And in my book, Winter is Coming, Why Vladimir Putin and Enemies of the Free World Must Be Stopped, released e at the end of 2015, even without mentioning Trump or other, other uh, things that happened later, I, you know, um, I, I, I knew that the... Uh, the winter was coming. I knew that there was a threat, an imminent threat to U.S. democracy, because I had no doubt that Putin, who gained um, power, money, and also arrogance over his 15 years in power, uh, would eventually attack the United States. And for me, Trump's election was a clear signal that even the United States, the, um, the leader of the free world, was no longer immune from a potential threat of being um, pushed not to authoritarian or totalitarian side, that's, I wouldn't go that far, but um, to, I saw that so many politicians here, uh, by the way, on both sides of the aisle, predominantly on the right, but also on the left, were willing to sacrifice fundamental democratic norms for short-term political gains. And that's how I came up with an idea of creating a Renewed Democracy Initiative. It was originally a group of uh, some of my friends, uh, some moderate Democrats in New York City, and uh, the group that I called, joking, the, the refugees from the Wall Street Journal. 
those uh, conservatives who couldn't stomach Trump and, and a policy of, of uh, Murdoch's conglomerate supporting uh, Trump's uh, reckless policies. And then it expanded, and probably now I have to pass it to Euro because um, he was our first employee, and gradually it, it, it became much more than a club of concerned intellectuals and individuals and, and became a very, I believe, very potent force of promoting democracy and also uh, telling Americans what could have happened, you know, unless, the, um, unless they actively engage in defending democratic institutions. So, and so at this point, before I kind of go into the tactical and strategic details of what RDI is looking to accomplish, I actually want to take a quick step back and, and go a little bit further back in time, actually, than where Gary started in 2017. Because I think, unfortunately, kind of the roots of both the challenge that we're facing today and ultimately RDI's mission uh, can actually be traced essentially to the end of the Cold War. Uh, you know, 1991 rolls around and we, after the, you know, the wall falls, after the Soviet Union collapses, we were so caught up, you know, celebrating what we thought was the end of history that we thought the fight was over. You know, we, we thought that liberal democracy had won. And we were wrong. And today, I think we're kind of reaping the benefits of having failed to make a strong case for liberal democracy since the end of the Cold War. I mean, is it any surprise that today not only can two-thirds of Americans not name the three branches of government, but more importantly that among millennials, uh, only 30-something percent believe that democracy is quote-unquote essential. Uh, now compare that to the number for uh, baby boomers, which I think is closer to well over 70 percent. Um, you know, so again, there's been this incredible decrease in public support for democracy, and so that's where RDI comes in. Our mission is essentially to do two things. First, we want to teach people about what these core liberal democratic principles are. And of course, when I say liberal democratic, I don't mean liberal in the sense of left wing, but rather liberal in the sense of classically liberal, right? In terms of uh, pluralistic, uh, open society, uh, rules-based norms, and, and, and so forth. And, um, you know, so the first part of this is essentially teaching what those norms are. And the second part of it is helping empower people to prioritize them in their civic decision making, in their civic behavior. Because right now, even those who understand, uh, you know, what a lot of these norms are, are generally unwilling or, or perhaps, you know, unequipped uh, to prioritize them when it actually comes to holding politicians and elected leaders accountable. And I think a lot of this really has its roots in civic education or the lack thereof, right? Even if we assume for a moment that people do get, you know, for those that do get civics education, what is it that they're learning? They're learning the basic what of American democracy, right? How many members of Congress are there? What year was the Declaration of Independence signed and so forth? But what they're not learning is the why of American democracy or the how in terms of how to practice American democracy. And so that's what RDI is all about. It's, it's really, we start where traditional American civics education ends. Uh, and that's around helping folks understand why the liberal democratic system is actually one of the best, not, not one rather, but the best system in the world. And two, uh, how do we actually take advantage of the tools and resources available to us to affect change? in a way where rather than trying to destroy the system we have, we actually build it up and repair it and make it work for more people. So as a student listening to you talk about RDI's mission, I mean, it's so vitally important. And you mentioned that, you know, most or many people can't even 
kind of recite the three branches of government. Is there anything yeah. in terms of the audience that you are targeting uh, to focus on students at all? Because it seems like this might also be a problem with young people kind of learning about civics, but maybe not fully embracing civics or practicing civics, like you said. You know, unfortunately, I, I, I think I'd use a bit of a stronger word than might be a problem, uh, you know, for students and Generation Z. Um, you know, I mean, I was in school not all that long ago. And so I, I remember quite well that it's a huge problem. Um, it, it, and it's a huge problem for a few reasons. So one, there's like the basic descriptive problem. Two thirds of Americans don't know the three branches. The vast majority of young American students don't know just the basics of American democracy. And if they don't know, if they don't even know the basics, then of course they're not going to feel empowered to make change. They're going to look at all these awful, you know, awful things happening and they're going to feel like they cannot make an impact if they don't, of course, know how to do so. Um, but then the second element of this, you know, which I think is just as important, is that they don't understand the importance of the system as it exists, right? They don't know any alternatives. So, you know, when when many students look at American society, what they focus on is how flawed it is. And I certainly don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to gloss over those flaws. I mean, there are these, you know, really uh, significant flaws that we have to work, uh, we have to work towards addressing. But what I think many of them may not have is the kind of context in which those flaws exist, right? They didn't live abroad in a dictatorship like the Soviet Union. They haven't lived in China. Uh, you know, I mean, I, far be, you know, of course, I'm not even talking about North, a country like North Korea, which is, you know, at the very extreme, most extreme end. Uh, today's Russia. And so when they look at uh, the flaws that, that, that they're faced in the US, there tends to be this element of catastrophizing, of of believing that this is essentially as bad as it can be. And therefore, we don't stand to lose anything if we just sort of throw away the system as it exists and try to kind of start from scratch, right? Essentially try to blow things up in order to fix them. Uh, you know, and that's something that we frequently see, I think, from radicals on either side. And what that approach lacks is, is that sense of context, the understanding of, uh, you know, however flawed the system is, it's a system that actually prioritizes individual rights in a way that as far, you know, almost no other system outside of kind of the Western free world does. And so uh, when it comes to RDI's work with students, that's one of our kind of key elements of focus. And uh, we are going to be working with students. We're going to be working with campuses around the country. Uh, you know, we're also hoping to get into high schools and work with high school civics teachers, history teachers, uh, and, and basically try to offer uh, kind of a different approach to teaching these subjects that's a lot more exciting, a lot more engaging, um, and, and really that's just a lot more directly relevant to people's lives because that's the kind of key message that we have for folks at the end of the day, that questions of democracy are not questions that belong in the ivory tower. They're, they're questions that directly affect your life, uh, even if you couldn't care less about politics. Uh, yeah, what I also wanted to bring into this discussion, you know, when the RDI was formed, is the international perspective. As I said, you know, I looked at the America from the other side of the Iron Curtain. And yes, yeah, we might be probably uh, uh, too optimistic about America. Maybe we looked at the United States from our gulag, you know, through uh, 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 the pink glasses. So that's the. But uh, it's the it's America as it as it stands today. It's probably the only country. Yeah, we may argue 
about Great Britain if we, if we if ignore the history of colonialism that actually solved most of these issues one by one without foreign intervention. Even if we look at European history, so every European country went through the period that you may call bumpy, and it was just, you know, um, at certain point, total rejection of the European democratic norms. And, uh, um, yeah, I saw the rise of radicalism on both sides because um, the social platforms offered uh, more power to those on the fringes. And I, I wrote many articles one about six months ago, one in The Economist, talking about the, the gap between um, uh, um, new powers available for individuals, ability to, to express our views. It's like you know, the Moore's Law. Every year you have more and more power, and that allows you to contact the whole world. But on the other side, the, the bureaucracy that follows Parkinson's Law, the ever-expanded ever, ever bureaucracy as the only response, response they know to new challenges. So on one side you have a cycle that is shortening, and on the other side you have the, uh, I wouldn't say antiquated, but um, quite you know, rudiment political system that you know, is based on you know, two, four, six, sometimes even more years of, of election cycles. And, and, and all these conflicts, they, you know, they created a space for, for demagogues that are just saying, oh look, there are problems, and the problems do exist. But the often, if not always, solutions that they offer, they are much worse than, uh, the, the cure actually is worse than the problem, uh, problem itself. And uh, I'm here to share this experience. And uh, it's very important to remember that every time that America sleeps, every time that America, America um, uh, finds itself in, 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 in a crisis, it affects millions, hundreds of millions, if not billions of people outside of the United States because every dictator, whether it's Xi Jinping, Putin, or other thugs and terrorists, they point at America and say, look, look at America, this is what you want. And, and um, I feel that you know, American leadership is absolutely paramount to promote these values. And what is happening in America now with the racial reckoning, with, with other you know, important challenges America is trying to cope with, this is not reason for self-flagellation. This is something to be proud of and, and fight back dictators saying, look, only America had courage, only America had institutions and tools to actually deal with these problems and solve these problems and don't use this, this uh, temporary crisis as, as, as uh, um, an excuse for your genocidal policy, po policies like in, in, in uh, um, Xinjiang with Vigours or with suppression of democracy or with um, uh, uh, st state-sponsored terrorism to suppress any, uh, um, uh, uh, any, any dissent like is happening now in Russia where the leader of, of Russian opposition is, is in jail after unsuccessful attempt to poison him. And any dissent in Russia now is, is criminal. Now, even the, the organization that is known for fighting corruption now is, is declared to be an extremist one. And, I mean, that, that perspective, just to really quickly add, ju jump in, um, I think that perspective of dissidents abroad is, is just going to be absolutely critical. I think that's really one of the unique value adds that RDI wants to bring into the kind of national discourse in the U.S. is, is, is really the perspective of people from around the world who've risked their lives for, you know, just a chance at one one hundredth. Uh, of the freedoms that we enjoy here in the U.S., I, I, I think hearing from those people can really be incredibly inspirational, uh, you know, for us here, and will hopefully cause folks to kind of recommit uh, to the core principles uh, of liberal democracy. Yeah, you know, the, the values of a democracy are so important. I think vital for every generation to learn about. And on your website, you 
mention 10 different values of that make up a democracy, and they range from the freedom of the press to speech, um, conscience, religion, and assembly to competitive marketplace, free from corruption, to equal justice, due process, and independence. I'm wondering why those are RDI's value and how you kind of came about to coming to those 10 values specifically. Um, so maybe we can start with Gary and then go to Uriel for that one. Uh, look, <laughs> I can tell you that it took us forever to actually squeeze it to 10. So just to, 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 have, the, to have some of the principles. Well, it's this, it's this, maybe we just wanted to, to have the same, like the original you know, uh, 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights. But the number could range from 5 to 30. Again, it's, it's, it's not about the, the, uh, the, the one phrase or one principle. It's about the concept. And we just, again, yeah, we tried to be concise, but at the same time, we tried to cover as much territory as we could. So we, that, that was a, some sort of a compromise of, of um, never-ending uh, intellectual debate about what is so important. And again, the Bill of Rights, you know, uh, gave you a pretty good uh, idea, so how we should frame it. Though, you know, we understand the Bill of Rights, as all founding American documents, were written at the end of the 18th century. Not just the end of the 18th century. I'm... And under no circumstances, I, I challenge these fundamental values. I'm just pointing out that some of the certain things that were, you know, in, engraved, they might uh, be a little bit antiquated these days. For instance, I'm, I'm not here to, to demand the abolition of the Second Amendment. But I'm just pointing out the fact that is in, at the time when this, this amendment was written, you know, you could kill, you know, one person in a minute and then you had just to, to, to reload your, your Kentucky rifle. Now you can kill 500 people in one minute. So again, the, and, and, and also the things about, you know, the, the, the fine, for instance, the $20 in, at the end of the 18th century was, was almost a fortune. Today, just, it's the, you don't know this is what you can buy for that. So, it's the, so what is very important, you know, we try to uh, modernize it. We try to, again, to keep, you know, the core principles. But it's very important that democracy, you know, is, can meet the expectations of new generations. It's very important to actually bring the, the, uh, the raw values because sometimes, you know, the, the wrapping paper can change, but the raw values must be there. And again, no other country but the United States created mechanisms that could, you know, step by step, sometimes slower than we wanted, but to address all the issues, that all the horrors of slavery and, and other you know, inequalities and gradually, one by one, to improve, improve situations. No other country in the world. Yes, America is not perfect, but you cannot measure America against heaven. You should measure America against the rest of the world. And if you look at America's role in the world, the way I saw it as a kid from the Soviet Union, the way I see it now, living in New York, you know, with, two, with, with three of my children actually being American citizens. So I understand that, you know, it's unless America... Uh, recovers this, it's the spirit of leadership and, and the pride of being absolutely unique country that, you know, that brought people from all over the world and offered them opportunity for a new life based on the, on, on equality, uh, uh, and, and, and opportunities. So it will, it will have disastrous consequences way beyond American borders. And so I'll, I'll add to that. I mean, you know, kind of as Gary said, you know, these values are not, you know, what we would call in consulting a mutually exclusive, collectively exhaustive list of principles. Um, you know, they, but we do believe that they inform or should inform rather 
um, much of you know, many of the processes that we have in place in, in kind of the American political system. And ultimately, that's that's kind of what we what we want to drive towards is is an understanding of how we can both maintain and so yeah to both maintain and establish processes through which self-improvement can occur right i mean i think gary mentioned this earlier where you know self-flagellation can be dangerous but self-reflection is a very positive feature and in fact that's one of the things that i do think has sort of made our republic kind of unique is that not only have we been able to engage in that self-reflection uh but we've actually formally established the mechanisms to do so uh regularly um you know and so today the extent to which we are we appear to be struggling uh, you know, to engage uh, productively in self-reflection, where you have some uh, some folks who you know really want to focus only on those things that we do that that the U.S. does wrong, and then others who want to believe that the U.S. can never do anything wrong. Uh, you know, needless to say, neither of those positions are accurate. Um, and uh, you know, we believe that the most productive way to kind of create the most the, the greatest good for the greatest number um, is through kind of a very honest self-reflective process uh, that actually uh, tries to 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 make productive change and takes into account uh, sort of numerous conflicting points of view. I'd also be remiss if I didn't add that the, that RDI does not have a position on the Second Amendment. Um, that's that's oh, no, beyond I, our. I, 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 just, I, the, the only reason I brought it <laughs> in is is just to show that certain things, you know, should be viewed, you know, uh, throughout the historical context. And uh, and while again, I say I, I believe that it should stay as it is. But you know, I'm, I'm by the way, I'm supporting you know certain limitations that will make sure that you know the tragedies as 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 they ha have been happening regularly uh, will, will will stop. It doesn't change human nature, but definitely you know, we should not again stick to the to to the to, to the letter or to every comma that 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 uh, was put on paper uh, with quills at the end of the 18th century. So it's it's a digital time. So maybe we we'll have to make slight uh, correction. If you were on the Supreme Court, you would not be uh, one of those interpreting the Constitution through its original intent. I can tell, but maybe. You uh, yeah, but well, you, you, this was original. But this, I would start arguing with them about original intent because intent, me, intent is always limited by the knowledge of the outside world. And yes, the original intent, you know, the founding fathers was based, and they were yeah, encyclopedic knowledge, but based on what they knew uh, in at the end of the 18th century. So it's this: how can you, you know interpret this intent based on what we know today, 240 years later? So I think as when I hear original intent, when I say, "Oh yeah, this is oh this is the book you know you cannot touch," I'm sorry. This is again we 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 intelligent people. So yes, I believe you know principles, but you know I I think I'm I'm a free man, you know, and I can start making slight corrections to make sure that younger generation will not be turned off. By, by the stubbornness of pushing, you know, the, the old texts that, you know, some of them cannot even read today. Before we move, as I want to, to uh, January 6th and what happened then, um, could one of you just say, is there a way that our audience could get involved in RDI and what could they do to uh, help to educate people and uh, help foster your mission? Yes, uh, you know, thank you, Jill. Um, so please, I, I would invite everybody listening right now to go to www.r 
rdi.org. So again, that's the initials Renew Democracy Initiative, rdi.org. Uh, you can subscribe uh, on our website, and you know, there obviously we're we're a nonprofit organization, so you know, there's there's no cost to anything, and you know, there's just an incredible amount of opportunity to get involved. Whether that means joining for our conversations, our virtual happy hours, uh, to volunteering. Um, you know, to we're, we're going to be organizing kind of a lay leadership in in various states in the U.S. Um, you know, so there's really going to be just incredible amounts of opportunity to get involved. So again, I'd really welcome everyone. Please go to rdi.org. Uh, you can sign up there, and I'd be really excited to see you at some of our next events. I mean, we're going to be, um, you know, and, and, and these events incidentally can range from any number of different things, from a happy hour, you know, conversation with Gary about um, Mikhail Bulgakov's Master and Margarita, for those interested in Soviet literature, um, you know, to a conversation with uh, uh, former Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vinman about how to instill a sense of duty uh, in students, uh, both in high school and in college. Uh, so there's really going to be, you know, kind of a hugely wide-ranging set of conversations. And most importantly, what we're really looking to do is is try to kind of change the dynamics in our national discourse. We want folks uh, to not just, you know, w one of the things actually that, that Gary brought up with the Second Amendment that I think is is really critical is that right now we're we're not well equipped to even have a good conversation about it. Right. I mean, we're in such a kind of polarized uh, uh, filter set, set of filter bubbles that even those issues where there might be mass agreement, right, like background checks or or whatever, we're, we're unable to actually have a productive dialogue and a productive discourse. And, you know, when people tend to talk about these things, what they're trying to do is essentially they're, you know, a lot of time it's really just to be as outrageous as you can possibly be, as angry and loud as you can possibly be, so that you get as many Twitter likes uh, as, as or retweets, that is, as, you know, as humanly possible. Um, but of course, that, that doesn't actually make for, for a good conversation or for good policy. And so we really are hoping to build this movement that prioritizes not just whatever ideology or policy, uh, you know, one or another person might believe in, but rather the process by which we can all come together and, you know, make progress, even if we disagree on, on certain policies. So Victor and I started this podcast to have an intergenerational perspective on things. And I'm from the generation that still remembers when we did have bipartisan dialogue, rational discussions, and where we agreed on the facts. But let's, let's look now first at January 6th. And how close do you think the U.S. came to the loss of our democracy on that day? Gary, you want to take it? Yeah. Um... Oh, um, I don't think it was close. Yeah, again, it is, maybe it's, it's, it's uh, my experience because I came from a country that uh, had a feeble democracy in the 90s and lost it to a KGB dictatorship. I, as a, also a chairman of Human Rights Foundation, I talked to dissidents from North Korea, from Hong Kong, uh, from those who I experienced the genocide in, in, in Xinjiang, Uyghurs. I spoke to many Africans and... Uh, Trust me, fighting for LGBTQ rights in Africa is slightly different than doing it in California. Fighting for Me Too and for gender equality in Afghanistan is different than doing it in New York. So it's probably me, you know, with my experience saying not close. But for America, it was unspeakable. I mean, this is to imagine America just, you know, uh, having conflict over results of the elections. 
yeah, for many countries in the world, that would be, okay, happens, you know, people just had a little fight. But for America, I think it's happened first time if we, if we disregard civil war. But also in the civil war, there was no argument. The thousand states simply seceded. They did argue that Lincoln was not elected. So it's the first time in, uh, in uh, more than two, two, two centuries, uh, American president, who had, unfortunately, so many followers, decided not even to challenge the elections because challenge failed. You know, how many cases in the court? Six, uh, 60, you know, dozens of cases, and they all were thrown away. But he actually used, you know, every trick in the book to create chaos. And chaos, that's very important. I always, you know, said that Trump was agent of chaos, as I call Putin merchant of doubt. And when Trump was elected, I told, you know, told Americans, I warned many times, you know, dictatorship doesn't appear overnight. This is not about tanks in the streets. It happens step by step, you know, the chip by chip, you know, they take away, they carve one piece or another piece. And, it, and you don't, you know, you don't notice it. This is the most dangerous one, the crawling one. All of a sudden, as I predicted, Americans would, would discover that many of the American traditional freedoms were based on a code of honor, tradition. Nobody did it. And Trump said, okay, nobody did it, I did, sue me. And, uh, and the, um, I, I don't think there, were, there, were, there, there was enough room, regal room for Trump to actually to create this chaos, so that's why it failed. But we also discovered so many discrepancies in American political system, something that has to be codified. It's just unfortunately, again, this is a, a tradition built by the great presidents, but by 200 plus years of... of um, uh, shift of power, peaceful shift of power from one, you know, one administration to another, and just created uh, some, sort of, some sort of complacency. You mentioned, you know, the old debates. I remember, you know, I watched um, you know, quite recently the first televised debates between Kennedy and Nixon, JFK and Nixon. Yeah, I suggest, you know, the young generation, you watch it. It's so much respect vice president, senator, and what was important, they debated about means, not about end goals. They were both Americas. This is important. And all of a sudden now, I'm seeing America where it's just the, you know, the, the, the goals, you know, the, the, um, the, the, the very existence of democracy, the meaning of democracy is being debated. And that's the greatest danger of, 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 uh, of January the 6th. Not what's happened there. Again, it was like a short fuse. It just exploded, but it didn't have an immediate effect. But it will have in a long-term effect of erosion. Because as a result of this Trump's work, you know, underground work, it's like, a, it's, I wouldn't call it a KGB mall, but it's like a work of the mall, you know. It's digging, digging uh, under, the, under this foundation of this, of this building, the big building of democracy. So many people, we're talking about tens of millions of people, do not believe that Joe Biden is a legitimate president. And the consequences of Americans losing faith in free and fair elections and the outcome of these elections, it again goes way beyond American shores. Because that sends a signal to Putin's of this world, say, yeah, look at America, this is it, nobody knows. Everybody steals elections. That's a big argument. And that, unfortunately, will help many dictators to justify their, their, their much more cruel methods staying in power. But they always point out America, and that's, what, you know, that's Trump's gift to Putin personally and to other dictators. So in your assessment of how close we came to a threat, at least, to democracy, um, how much weight do you give to the failure of Trump and the Pentagon 
to respond to the what was going on in the Capitol and to the danger to the vice president and to the members of Congress. Uh, look, I, get, I, I, I don't like hearing Pentagon, you know, just in, in, in this equation, because the last thing I want to see is the troops, you know, just, you know, defending the results of the elections. That's, that definitely could, you know, could be an image that will be very difficult to erase in the future. But we're definitely talking about, uh, about um, uh, inaction of the police, so the, the intelligence service, because so much information has been gathered, and they definitely knew that something was happening. I'm not sure they knew exactly what was happening. I'm not even sure there was a big master plan, but definitely, you know, there, 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 was, there was something, you know, there that could, you know, could send warning signs. And the fact is that Trump, you know, pushed, you know, pushed and pushed uh, uh, all the time, you know, uh, demanding, demanding the uh, elections to be overthrown and finding new and new... Uh, uh, um, reasons to, to, to put these roadblocks in front of, of, of Joe Biden's inauguration, that's, that's dangerous. And by the way, you know, no matter what you think about Pence, he didn't play the ball. You know, this is, it's very important, you know, that even, even William Barr didn't play the ball. But you look now at what's happening in GOP. Next time, they might. This is very important. Again, the real tragedy, what's happened on, on January 6th, is not, you know, on that day. It's about a lasting effect and now I'm, I'm, I'm seriously concerned that America, as you point out, is, is so deeply divided. And unless we find a way to close this divide, to take most of the people from the fringes, from the radicals, so because we need to, to rebuild the mainstream, you know, the uh, political movement, you know, people who may disagree on many things, but they know that it's about, about democratic values. Yeah, it's the uh, Liz Cheney voted for many things that I, I wouldn't vote for. But she didn't, you know, she didn't uh, uh, vote to support Trump's uh, uh, false claims. And it's quite, this is quite ironic, but again, very dangerous. When you look at what's happening in Republican leadership, replacing Liz Cheney, a lifetime conservative, with, I think, 93% record of voting with Trump, to um, uh, Stefanik, who is, when you look at her record, she's more liberal than, than Il Ilan Omar tells you, no, this is, it's a record, this is just a number of votes, you know, so this, she has a just lousy record by conservative standards. It tells you that the, the today GOP is not about principles, it's about loyalty. And the moment you replace principles by loyalty, you open the door for dictatorship. I think that's what we were trying to establish here. And do you think that accountability for what happened on January 6th is essential to the continuance of our democracy? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, so the commission, um, I, I think the commission's absolutely necessary. I mean, if you have, if, if, you, if we, we've already, I mean, quite frankly, what happened on January 6th, as Gary pointed out, is already incredibly dangerous, both from a domestic U.S. point of view in terms of setting a precedent and spreading doubt, and from an international point of view in terms of uh, not only uh, dictators like Putin and Xi Jinping being empowered, but also uh, dissidents and democracy fighters being disempowered, right? I mean, they were the ones always pointing to America and saying, look, that's how it should be done. And now suddenly it's like, oh, whoa, hold on, uh, maybe not, I don't know. Um, and so suddenly they find themselves actually in a much weaker position. So there's this incredible danger both domestically and internationally. Now, this danger will be compounded multiple times over if there is no accountability. Um, so in other words, there, uh, you know, I feel very strongly that there absolutely has to be some 
some form of, of of accountability that's that's brought to bear. Now, of course, you know, Congress tried to do that, right? I mean, they they did they 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 uh, went through impeachment proceedings. Uh, he was impeached in the House. He um you know he was certainly he wasn't convicted in the Senate, but nevertheless he did get seven Republican votes. Uh, you know, in support of conviction, um, we know, which is certainly not nothing. With respect to the the, the talk of this new commission, it, it appears that it will likely pass the House, um, albeit without the support of. Um, of, of, of Representative McCarthy, um, you know, and then the, its fate in the Senate is, you know, rather open-ended. Uh, you know, certainly I believe that it, that there's no excuse for, um, you know, for, for this commission to, to not pass. Uh, I think it absolutely has to go through, and I think we absolutely have to, one, understand where the failures happened. So in other words, like, were these, to what extent were these failures tactical in nature? Like, was it that the police you know, didn't have a good understanding of the movements of the crowd. Uh, you know, did the co did did the um uh, did the National Guard not have the the relevant communications to kind of know where to go, when to go? Uh, or was this something that was more fundamental? Uh, was this something that was you know essentially coming from the top, or rather, where there was nothing coming from the top? Uh, you know, which I know is kind of much of what we've read essentially was that there was no communication. Uh, you know, from the president, uh, you know, and, and then there were open questions as to whether or not the secretary of defense, uh, who I believe was acting at the time, had the authority uh, to order the National Guard to come in, um, you know, you know, so on and so forth. So in other words, there are, I think, a lot of these unanswered questions. Um, I do think a commission uh, would play a very important role in answering those questions. But I think just as importantly, if not more so, would be the symbolic role of such a commission, um, you know, whose purpose essentially would be to show that even when America has such a significant slip up, it has the wherewithal to investigate it uh, and to address it and, and, and to ensure that those responsible, uh, you know, face at least some form of accountability. Um, I think that the, the change of the, uh, the position of minority leader of uh, McCarthy uh, uh, was a result of direct, direct order from Mar-a-Lago. Because Trump understands that the commission will find something. I don't think it was a big conspiracy, but there will be something that will, will, will um, incorporate him and his cronies in doing things that many Americans will not like. Again, I don't know how far they went by, by breaking the law. Maybe that's as well. But again, Trump doesn't want this commission to be bipartisan because he always wants to, to, to have a reserve option, calling this partisanship. Oh, that's only Democrats. They are just, you know, they want to discredit me. So it's very important for Trump to actually to keep his army, you know, uh, intact. That's why, you know, that he was enraged by Liz Cheney and other uh, Republicans in the House who voted for impeachment. Because, again, they, they, they show disloyalty. And that's why he wants to punish them. He wants to make sure that no uh, other Republican will even dare to cross him and to defect when... The, 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 the potential crimes being discussed. And again, that's, you know, um, uh, um, winning this argument within the within GOP where loyalty goes before the law and democratic principles tells us that, you know, uh, we have uh, very rough times ahead of us. And, and incidentally, I mean, that's the same reason why uh, uh, Trump attacked Miles Taylor and the other signatories of this, you know, letter for American renewal, I think it was called, but, you know, essentially all these former uh, Republican elected officials and, uh, and uh, appointees and other such who signed on to this letter condemning uh, the fact, you know, essentially condemning this devolution 
uh, of of elements within the GOP to sort of almost cult like status. Um, you know, that's why the, that people like that are actually the greatest threat uh, that someone like Donald Trump could face. Because again, what what it proves is that this isn't a partisan question. Ultimately, RDI, we're a nonpartisan organization, and I don't think it's a partisan question, you know, what as to what happened on January 6th, just like I don't think it's a partisan question of, you know, the fact that it's objectively bad for everybody if there are significant elements of one of the two major parties that become increasingly cult-like. Uh, that's something that is in, in absolutely nobody's interest. I think you've both made the point very clear that when you turn to a cult of personality, that's the foundation for which uh, authoritarianism, dictatorships, totalitarian regimes start. Um, but And you've also made clear what the danger is if we don't have a two-party system. But what is, if you know, what do you think the antidote is to having uh, this world in which we're in parallel universes where we don't share facts, where half the, uh, or 70% at least, of the Republican Party thinks that President Biden is not the legitimate president. Is there a way to approach the facts that need to get out, or is there some other way to deal with this? Uh, the only positive fact, uh, uh, that is, is the number of Republicans who do not believe Joe Biden is the legitimate president keeps decreasing. It was a month ago, it was 80 plus percent. Now it's under 70. Hopefully, eventually it will be just, you know, in, in, in 50s or even lower. But still, we're talking about tens of millions of Americans that believe that American uh, elect electoral system is flawed. And that's why they can challenge any elections, any results of any elections. And, uh, and uh, uh, it, it makes a normal transit of power impossible. So what is important in our view is as to make sure that you know the yeah we have let's say we have we need more Joe Bidens, people who you know who uh, um, uh, project uh, moderation and readiness to compromise. Though it's very difficult, you know, with opposite side being so aggressive, uh, because as we understand, you know, uh, if not for Joe Biden, Trump would be the president again. That's, you know, that, let's, let's be honest, you know, this is, it's the, the reason why many Republicans are just, you know, sticking to Trump, because they look at the other side and say, oh, there's, there's so many radicals there. And I'm not, I'm, I'm, I have no intention of comparing the insurrection of January 6th with some of the most radical demands like defund the police. But the problem is that the, this, you know, look at New York, New York City, for instance, you know, the latest poll shows that 35% want, you know, to keep the police budget intact, 35% want to increase it, 30% to decrease it. Now, but, but you look at the democratic field and many of them pushing for the 30%. So that gives Republicans room. It's very important that we have the very strong position in the center, the moderates, the Joe Bidens, you know, uh, and it, you go back, you know, with a tradition of both Republican and Democratic presidents. That will deny uh, radicals a, a, a big say in politics. And it's very important. The moment you don't have, on, on the Democratic side, powerful voices uh, pushing too far, you will basically take away, uh, take away many arguments from, from the crazy side. So, again... There's no way to compare, you know, the uh, those on, on on progressive side with MTG, uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Green. But it's very important that she collects tons of money pointing out there. So it's very important that we we uh, break this this uh, vicious circle where the, where where the the radicals on one side could point at the other side, saying, "Look 
and, and, and they, they always have, you know, enough supporters to, to, to propel them to the top. It's, you know, it's uh, somehow, it it's reminds me of this vicious circle of the Spanish Civil War, because all of a sudden you discover that you, if you are just, you know, an ordinary man, you are just uh, fascist on one side, a communist on the other side. So again, we don't want us to, 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 to discover, discover uh, that we are, you know, reduced to, to this uh, horrible choice. Again, right now, the Democratic Party, with all, you know, my reservations about progressives, is standing as the garden of democracy. But it's very important that, you know, it will have a solid position in the center. Because if it can bring enough independence and show its, 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 its um, adherence to the, to, to the values of moderation and American democracy, it will deny Republicans chance of winning. And then, you know, you will see changes because many, many on... on, on um, on the moderate side of GOP, as just you mentioned, the Miles Taylor, they will start looking for for other way for uh, um, for other ways around. Again, we just have to kill the spell of radicalism and and point out, you know, uh, at, at those who are you know pushing us in opposite direction and and restart the dialogue. As is important, you know, this is support those on the Republican side who are willing to talk. I mean. Again, as I said, I, I disagreed on many issues with Liz Cheney, but it's very important that we make sure that right now we all working together because it's about priorities. Defending democracy is a top, top, top priority. Then we can talk about, you know, uh, uh, other important things, you know, like, you know, this is uh, uh, pro-choice or pro-life. So, yes, I'm, I'm social liberal, so that's why you shouldn't be scared by, by my comments. But, but it's very important that we talk to those who are ready to work with us defending democracy. Because if we lose framework that allow, allowed us for more than two centuries to debate the issues and find solutions, then the, then, then the January 6th, might become, you know, uh, it's, it's a weekly event uh, and, and it's, it's, it, it's, it will be a new, a new fashion for, for radicals to, to go after, after, uh, after those who are not sharing their agenda. So we've had such a brilliant conversation here about the U.S. And I want to move into, I know, a topic that a country that both of you have expertise in, and that is Russia and a lot of the situation that's going on in Russia between Putin and, and uh, Nalvani. So maybe we'll start with Uriel on this one. Um, you know, we've heard the near-death conditions that Nalvani has been subjected to, as well as the number of people who have taken to the streets to protest Putin's rule. Um, give us a kind of sense of what the situation is like in Russia and how it got to where it is. You know, I just let me just jump into this question. You sure. know, it's just to understand what's happening in Russia now and how bad it is. Imagine, you know, Derek Chauvin and many Derek Chauvins after committing real, I mean, it's not just, you know, what's happened in, 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 in Minnesota, but actually doing it, you know, in, 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 in big numbers and being rewarded, receiving medals for these crimes. That's Russia. Mm. In Russia, b police brutality is not a problem like in America. It's a system. That's, you know, that's the problem that tells you everything. And Alexei Navalny uh, is, is in jail. And I, I hate sharing bad news, especially at the end of the conversation. But I don't believe that he will see the daylight outside of his prison cell as long as Putin is in power. Mm. And, and now we see hundreds and thousands of people being arrested for supporting Navalny. By the way, not even going to the streets, though I can proudly tell you, to my memory, when I was in Russia uh, from 2005 to 2013, we had many demonstrations. I saw them uh, on, on, on TV, on Internet. Not a single broken window. 
the only violence on the streets of Russia came from the right police, from the Putin's intelligence uh, um, uh, service, so from those who were hunting us. And now people being arrested for tweets, for sharing blogs, for reposts, not even showing up on the street, but simply you know, being supportive on, in a social media. So that's that's very harsh reality of Putin's Russia. And uh, and when you when you are you know just complaining about challenges in America, just remember you know what's what's people you know who are trying to raise their voice in Russia or in countries like Russia are facing. Although I, and and I'll add, I mean, as as Gary noted, I was thankfully born in the U.S., but my parents are both from the former Soviet Union, and so I essentially grew up kind of in a little Russia. Uh, you know, we spoke. In fact, English was actually forbidden in my house growing up, so I uh, I spoke exclusively in Russian. I heard all of these stories. Um, you know, from from my parents. And one of those stories that sort of sticks with me the most, which, you know, is also, you know, it, it seems like we're once again in Russia kind of going in this direction, is is the story from 1954, when my dad, I think, was about 17 or 18. Uh, and Joseph Stalin, 1954, 1953, Gary, you can correct me, when Joseph... 53, March 5th, 53. <laughs> should, should remember the one of the one of the worst vampires. So Joseph died. Stalin died uh, in in 1953, and my dad uh, was actually almost arrested. Uh, he was uh, afraid of getting a KGB visit. Uh, to his home because in school, uh, you know, when he was in school, they they announced uh, Stalin's death, and he didn't cry uh, quickly enough. He didn't react. He didn't have an emotional reaction to, to Stalin's death, aside, of course, internally of jubilation, which perhaps he didn't do a very good job of hiding. Um, and, of course, the, that very reaction or, or lack thereof was sufficient cause for him to fear uh, a visit by the KGB. You know, and, and, you know, we may not be quite there yet uh, in Russia today, but, but we're certainly well on our way. But it's also stories like that that really sort of force – you know, when I think of, you know, both what's going on in Russia and what's going on in, in, in uh, you know, politically almost anywhere, uh, one of the key elements, you know, I think one of the founding principles that that is uh, important almost above all else is that freedom to not have to look over your shoulder, that, you know, that element of freedom of speech, freedom of association, you know, what the First Amendment uh, protects Americans from, from the government, uh, I think it, it's, it's absolutely critical, not just from the point of view of the government, but also uh, on a societal level, uh, you know, where we need to feel comfortable speaking out, because if we don't, uh, you know, then that's going to get pushed down and down and down until ultimately, uh, you know, there's going to be a very negative reaction. There's going to be some kind of blow up. Uh, and so today, when you have an entire populace in Russia uh, increasingly being controlled more and more tightly, uh, you know, I think ultimately Twitter, you know, may well be banned. I mean, you know, you're going to start seeing elements of Russia start looking like uh, parts of China. Uh, you know, I, I think you're going to hope, you know, you may well start seeing that kind of um, potentially that kind of resistance, perhaps inspired uh, by by Navalny's example. I, I just add that, unfortunately, you know, Twitter will not be banned in Russia. So unfortunately, because I just read uh, this morning that they accepted demands, 91% of the, of the content that was produced by, by Russian opposition, including many uh, came from Navalny, was removed. And that's why Twitter was spared. I, mm -hmm. I find it you know, outrageous that the companies that are so, you know, so um, 
uh, vigilant in defending democracy in America. They are willing to do whatever to protect their business, whether it's in China and Russia, ignoring the fact that by doing so, they're endangering, directly endangering lives of millions of people and, 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 and denying them an opportunity to peacefully protest against dictatorships. Maybe the last question about Russia is uh, maybe for Gary, because in 2008, you announced your intention uh, to run for president in Russia, and then you fled the country because um, you feared political persecution from Putin. I guess maybe first, can you tell us about that? And then also maybe whether or not you think there's any chance that someone can beat Putin in the short or long term uh, future? I hope you all listening carefully to what I said a few minutes ago. Russia is an open fascist dictatorship. When regimes like Putin's reach this stage of development or, I don't know, of, of degradation, uh, election is a fake. You know, it just, you know, it's, it, it exists only as a window to, to, to mislead uh, both as populace and also the, the, the rest of the world. Putin wants to be called president, not dictator. He deserves to be a, uh, called dictator. Joe Biden called him killer, and that's, that's who he is. Uh, and uh, um, whatever happens with Putin, bad news, I don't know how and when he is going to disappear. Good news, he also doesn't know, because dictators, they don't have a calendar. So they think they'll, they stay there forever. He's already there for 22 years, mm. nearly 22 years. Imagine 22 years. It's more than Leonid Brezhnev was there for eight years. So he's trying probably to reach, reach Stalin's record. So he was more than a quarter of a century. So, um, and uh, in, when you said uh, run for president uh, in 2007, I declared this intention. It was just, you know, an experiment to prove that you couldn't even register. Yeah. I had money, I, had, you know, I, I, I was a celebrity, people knew me. I still couldn't go through this elementary process because they always created problems. So that's, I failed you know, just to put my name on the ballot. As, and it, it was 2007, late 2007. Those I call were you know, vegetarian times. In 2007, for, for being on the street protesting, I could end up in jail for five or 10 days, as I did. Today, it will be five to 10 years. But even then, None of us could actually put the name in the ballot. So that's why, again, you, know, uh, you, should, uh, you should value what you have here because people are willing to die for one-tenth of the freedoms that are available, available for Americans. And uh, what happens with regimes like Putin's is they collapse when they have um, geopolitical defeat. And uh, hopefully this administration will show enough strength to lead the free world and to stop Putin's aggression, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's Syria, whether it's elsewhere. And, uh, and uh, it's at one point, you know, the regime will collapse because it will run out of legitimacy. It will uh, um, face angry population because living standards in Russia are, are, are falling apart. Uh, and also, you know, it, it has almost no allies in the world. But it's still very dangerous. Putin controls more funds, directly or indirectly, than any other dictator in the history. He's, he has yeah, nuclear weapons. And uh, um, he had a streak of 20 years of spreading these um, uh, uh, aggressive ideas and, and, and policies and spilling blood. So that's why he has no allergy for blood. Now, it has to be stopped. Putin is an existential threat for everybody, for the, for the humanity. It's not just you know, a problem for Russia not problem for Ukrainian or, or Baltic states. It's as we saw in 2016 and nearly saw in 2020, he has very long hands. 
uh, long, dirty hands uh, with tons of money and uh, no barriers that uh, he will be hesitant to cross. And to par, I mean, uh, on that, to, to paraphrase Martin Luther King, you know, a, a threat to democracy anywhere really becomes a threat to democracy everywhere. Um, you know, precisely because it's in Putin's interest uh, to not to, to not even so much directly go against to directly attack democracy in like a full on frontal assault, but rather to spread doubt, to spread uncertainty, to spread chaos. I mean, that's why he doesn't care whether he supports, uh, you know, a, a very, very far left or a very, very far right candidate. He'll support whomever he can, as long as that whomever he's supporting will bring um, uncertainty, will bring chaos to their country. Um, you know, and so that's why it's directly in American interest and in the interest of, you know, other free countries around the world uh, to, 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 to not just stop someone like to, to not just help rather the, the dissidents in Putin's Russia, but to directly stop Putin. I mean, this isn't just an altruistic effort. It really is a self-interested one. It's very interesting listening to you. Um, I didn't think of this as we were preparing to talk to you today, but my first job, um, I took a year leave of absence in law school and worked for the Assembly of Captive European Nations. And it was uh, led by the former heads of all the countries that had been independent before Hungary, Romania, uh, Lithuania, etc. And um, was obviously very strongly anti-USSR and communism. So you're bringing me back to many, many years ago and, and what I thought, but um, there's so many topics that we had on our list of things to ask about, but before we run out of time, I just have to at least ask Gary about the Queen's Gambit um, and what it was like to have a role producing it and seeing it succeed beyond, I assume, beyond everyone's wildest dreams. Uh, can you tell us about that? Oh, you're right. Yes, it succeeded beyond the wildest dreams because it's the. I spoke a few days before the release. I spoke to Scott Frank. We became very, very good friends uh, throughout the whole process, and uh, he just, you know, he had no expectations. Trust me. Uh, this, he, that, he did it because he loved the book, uh, and and he always wanted to do it, and because he had a successful limited series with with Netflix. Oh, 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 everybody forgot about uh, Godless. Actually, I like this series. Recommend you watching it. So uh, uh, they just let him do this film eh, about chess. And the whole, this, this story started as, as many and similar stories uh, in the restaurant on the Upper West Side. So I, um, I got a call from Bruce Pandolfini. He's a famous chess coach who actually worked with Walter Tevis. When Bruce was young, he actually helped Tevis with some advice, uh, uh, no, writing, writing the book. Uh, and also he was involved in the teaching, for, uh, searching for Bobby Fischer, the movie. And, and he was always, you know, advising uh, chess movies. So he called me and said, Gary, why don't you meet Scott Frank? I said, okay, fine. So we'll talk about Walter Tevis' book. That's fine, interesting. So uh, I, I saw many chess movies. Some of them were really good, you know. So the the the, que the, the Queen of Catwe, for instance, about the girl from Uganda. So I think that was a good one. Totally failed in 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 the box. So that's the nobody cared. Too far away. It's the uh, pawn sacrifice about Fisher's Paskim, Bobby Fisher's rise. Eh, not again. Toby Maguire just could make it could make it work. Good movie, but solid again. No, it's it couldn't touch a nerve. And um, so we, I, 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 was, I, I went to the restaurant, so my wife Dasha was with me, so we entered the restaurant, we sat down with, with Scott, with Bruce and, 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 and Bill, his, his, his producer, 
And he said, I have this idea. I said, great. So Gary, you know what? I want you to play the Soviet world chess champion, Vasily Borgov. I said, yeah, that's very natural for me. So, but you know, I'm not, oh, no, 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 you can, you can do great. You know, this is, let's, you know, let's, we should, you should, you should do it. Because then, you know, then I don't have to, you know, to, to, to teach you. And you will actually teach the whole crew how to play chess. I said, look, it's very tempting, so, um, but I don't have time. He says, okay, you know, we have a scene with, with, with Borgov's wife. We can bring your wife as well. You know, you can both be in the screen. So <laughs> very tempting. So we still, I looked at Dasha, she looked at me, so we said, no, no, we had to, the two and a half, three months of my time couldn't make it. So he was very, very upset. And then I suggested, how about, you know, me working with you as a consultant? I can do a few things that were very important because I understand you want to show chess. You want to demonstrate the, the sort of the, the detention of the game of chess. You know, the, and it's, 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 it's a story about personalities, but you also need the moves because you will show there, there, will, be, there will be some, you know, wide shots. You know, you, they'll see the chess board. So he said, uh, and then it will be you know, the, the close shots on the position. He said, fine. So I'll send you the script. I went to the script and I said, look, you know, I can do chess. I guarantee it will be almost intact. So this is, it's the, the game of chess will be at the level because the problem with Walter Tevis, he was a chess, he, he had two passions in his life, the pool, and that's, you probably, you know, just remember his two books and both turned in, into Hollywood blockbusters, The Hustler and The Color of Money, so about the pool player, so in both Pullman played, so again, suggest great movies and and um and he was also a chess fan but because he was a chess fan and, and he played some decent chess he described the games to you know in in too many details but not at the level of the championship match so so i had to i tried to keep you know it's intact you know his description but I had to find games that would be, would be elevated to the level of the best players in the world. Also, I, I told Scott, so look, it's very important that you have the authentic Soviet atmosphere. That's how you got KGB guys. KGB, mm -hmm. I can tell you, that was my invention. So they're not in the book. So the whole KGB um, story there, including the, including the, the very important dialogue in the elevator, when this, this, they, that, she, that she overheard standing at, at the back of the elevator. That's, you know, that's, that was my contribution. So I said it's very important, you know, that's the, that's the, you have this, you know, um, you have this, uh, a real fact, because KGB had to follow the Soviet champion, especially if he left with his, with his wife and kids abroad. So that's, that's, that was mandatory in the Soviet Union. And also that's its importance of him demonstrating that he knew, you know, that's the real threat coming from Bess Harmon when he talked about her being an orphan and losing not was not an option. And, uh, and then, you know, the, all these things that happened, you know, at the final match, you know, these, the, all the atmosphere, so the body movement, so uh, Borgov, actually, Mar Marcin Dorczynski, the Polish actor, he, he spent hours watching me, actually, on, on video, <laughs> so just to make sure that it's just, it's, again, it's all, all authentic. And... Um, and it's just, and, and of course, you know, he was lucky. I mean, he picked up, he picked Anya immediately. So just was, he didn't even have, you know, it's just, it's, he knew that was the right choice. And pure luck. So that's, he had everyone on place, you know, that's, and, and, uh, and probably pandemic helped, but I think it's important that people were, they were, um, rooting for a sto personal story. It's, a, it's not just a success story. It's a story to, to, um, about a challenge because she had to overcome her dependence on drugs, on alcohol, and she was an orphan from Kentucky. And again, it's the most un improbable 
combination of factors. An orphan girl from orphan girl from Kentucky playing chess, Soviet Union, the 60s. Every component, if you take them, you know, take them apart, every component will tell you the movie would be a failure. S somehow bringing them together mm. created an, an, an amazing story. And, and I can tell you, I had interviews, events, not a single event since the release of the movie that I was not asked about the Queen's Gambit. <laughs> I can talk about cybersecurity. I can talk about geopolitics. I can talk about American politics. I can talk about artificial intelligence. It's, you know, but by the way, you know, can you spend a few minutes <laughs> just you know, talking about it? Because I was amazed by, by, the, by the broad uh, um, reception. And, and again, somehow people found few missing elements. Again, maybe pandemics helped, but also I think it's people, you know, they, there was an overdose of sci-fi, fantasy, so real story. And actually, again, it's as real as you can get to chess events. People mm. ask me, oh, but, you know, she looked, you know, uh, just on the ceiling, and it's, I said, yes, that's exactly how the great talent would do. Sometimes, you know, you uh. want to take your eyes away from the board, and you want to look, uh, just, you know, you still remember the position. It's, it's you know, but and they all did it perfectly. So I, again, I was, I was very proud that, you know, I, I was part of this production and helped it, helped chess to, to regain its, its glory because for so many years, decades, we heard these arguments from the parents saying, ah, chess, you know, it could potentially threaten the men mental stability of, of, of kids. And, and now it's the opposite. Wow, chess, chess is cool. Chess is good for you kids. So I expect, you know, a big boom of the game, especially among girls. Well, Queen's Gambit was a great movie, and it's one that I really wanted to be true. I, I just was so disappointed that it wasn't a true story. But Look, um, it's this, it starts in the books, you know. It's this is again. It's this. It it will happen eventually. But it's just yeah, we we need to see. You know, that's a great book. You know, being presented. You know, in 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 such you know details uh, on 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 the screen. And now people know. It's just it's um, it's as long as you can see it on the screen, it's no longer a, a dream. It's no longer an illusion. So it's something that will happen. I just have one final question, because, Yuria, I see chess pieces and a chess board behind you. <laughs> did you and Gary meet through chess? And you chess don't see there, so... <laughs> <laughs> did you and Gary meet through chess, or, or um, do you play chess? Uh, tell us. <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, no, we, I've never played chess with Gary. I've never... I, Gary and I don't really talk very much about chess. My knowledge <laughs> of chess is quite limited, to be honest, certainly in... In comparison to Gary, I mean, it, it is, I, you know, it's funny, I, I, you know, I've introduced Gary at a number of events, you know, we, we, we've done, a, we, we've worked together for the last couple of years now, um, you know, and, and, and something that, that frequently I, I, I find myself kind of explaining uh, to various American audiences is that in Russia, chess is the equivalent of baseball. Um, you know, that, that's, that chess has that kind of cachet, which of course would make Gary essentially the equivalent of Babe Ruth. And so much like, you know, many American kids would go off and play rec soccer or, or baseball or whatever, uh, the kids of Russian expats would play chess. And so, yeah, when I was a kid, my parents sent me to chess school. I, to be quite honest, never quite had the patience for it. I, I, I was always, you know, I wanted to, to move like, you know, with chess, you have to, one of the, I mean, I think one of the only things that is almost impossible to really convey in a show like Queen's Gambit is that, you know, I mean, uh, as I'm sure Gary will tell you, you will frequently spend, you know, at the height of a game, you could spend half an hour, 40 minutes, whatever, on a single move. And, uh, you know, making sure that, you know, you figure, you think through the tactics, the, you know, however, think how many, however many moves ahead. And so, you know, it's, 
it's something that, you know, is, is I think, a familial thing. You know, I used to play with my father, with my grandfather. Um, it was never, unfortunately, it wasn't quite something I was ever particularly good at, although, you know, I will say that it's, it's funny that now, you know, working with, you know, working at RDI over the last couple of years, I, I've now come to the point where I kind of almost feel like I have to start learning a little bit more uh, just because, you know, this certainly is not the first time somebody's asked this question. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, it's very much sort of, no, we don't, we don't, we don't have a, a chess test, uh, for our <laughs> interns. <laughs> not, not yet. I mean, we'll, we'll not yet. Yeah. <laughs> maybe soon <laughs> or at least have a chess set. Yes. Thank you both so much. Yeah. This has been a really terrific conversation. And, uh, I, I hope you'll come back again because we had many more questions we didn't get to. Um, and hey, can I ask him a question? when, when we stop recording, my husband has come home from work and Gary, he would be so thrilled if he could, I'll, I'll turn the camera so that he can see you and you can see him <laughs> and I'll take out the earphones so he can ask you his question. Okay. 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 Thank you. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. Thank you.